I'm so grateful for Jenny and just the example she is and everything she does. I'm so grateful for her and Randy both. On a way, way, way less sentimental note, have you ever met a celebrity and walked away a little bit disappointed? I have. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is because that's not the point, but a few years ago, I had the opportunity to meet my favorite stand-up comedian. I love stand-up comedy. Um, I love it. I think it's fun. It's entertaining. Also, I study it. Like, I think stand-up comedians are some of the best communicators out there. And so I watch stand-up comedy and TED Talks so that I can get better at what I do. And this guy was my favorite. And so I bought the ticket, and honestly, for the first time, maybe ever, because I'm cheap, uh, I paid up to do the meet the celebrity thing, go to the get a picture with them and do the Q&A with them in the small private audience. And so, so I do that, and I'm excited, and, and I go, and... You know, everyone's in the room together. It's like the small, intimate room where we can just ask direct questions and get answers. And I have my questions ready. And before I ask this guy anything, one of the girls from the back goes, Hey, how come you don't have a girlfriend? I, I kind of think she was offering, honestly. Not 100% sure. Um, but he just looks at her. He's kind of quiet and goes, Do you want to know? We're like, Yeah, okay. And just with this sad, defeated voice. He says, well, honestly, I get all the emotional satisfaction and fulfillment I need from being on a stage and hearing people chant my name and clap for me and laugh at my jokes, and I just don't think I need any interaction beyond that. That sounds healthy. Okay. Like, we're just, like, awkwardly quiet. We don't, like, the whole room, we don't know what to do with that answer. It's like, okay, thank you for your honesty. You should get some help. Okay. And, uh... Went on, and you know what? The show was still funny, but I didn't enjoy it the way I thought I would. I didn't even keep the picture I had with the guy. I deleted it. Just after meeting him, you know what? Not who I thought he was. And then more news came out years later, and turns out he was even less like the guy I hoped he would be. Walked away disappointed. Maybe that's why they tell us to never meet our heroes, right? Have you heard that before? Never meet your heroes? Um, you know what, if you have, I hope it's a great experience. But I think even if it turns out they're still a good person, maybe we realize they're not who we thought they were. Right? Maybe they're still a little bit different than we expected them to be. We realize that this person that we were cheering for or following isn't, you know, reality. Here's the deal. We need to give grace in those situations. Me for the comedian, you if you've gotten to meet a hero and we're disappointed. Because the reality is we're all human. Right? We're all flawed we're all messed up, and none of us wants to be seen or judged on our worst day. But what do you do when the person you realize isn't exactly who you thought they were? What do you do if that's Jesus? What do you do if that's God? This is something that some Israelites encountered. See, sometimes we encounter Jesus, and then it turns out that Okay, maybe he's not a disappointment, but maybe some of the things he does or some of who he is, that's not exactly what we expected. What do we do then? In the story we're looking at today, we see people, some of them knew exactly who he was, and some people were a little off. Some of them worshipped him, some of them rejected him, some of them became disappointed in him. All of this happened, and even changed, during the week leading up to his crucifixion. We're kicking off a new series today, and we're calling it The Week That Changed the World. Over the next few weeks, we're looking at what's often called Holy Week or Passion Week. And it's the events that happen starting when Jesus enters Jerusalem 
It's when he washes his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. It's when he squares off against religious authorities. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then ultimately, he is judged and crucified and died and buried and then comes back on Easter. That all happens within one week. So that's why we're calling it the week that changed the world. And that week kicks off um, when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the very first time, not for the very first time, for the first time in this week as we're starting Passion Week. This is Passover week. It's a really big deal. It's a big religious festivity for the Israelites. And people are coming in from all over to celebrate and worship in Jerusalem. And our story starts there in Matthew chapter 21. And we start in verse 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. And as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This only works when Jesus explicitly tells you to do this. It doesn't work the rest of the time. But there's one place I haven't tried it, and I kind of think it would work. I think if you did this at Chick-fil-A, they would just say, my pleasure, here you go, sir. Like I think they would just like, yep, here you go. What, What sauce do you want with that? I think it would work there. Anywhere else, not so much. We're not talking about the Lord's chicken. We're talking about the Lord's donkey. And what we see here is that he is prepared, either naturally or supernaturally, for this donkey and colt to be available and ready for him. And this actually took place to fulfill a prophecy. It took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, and this is quoting Zephaniah here, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And this is directly pointing to Jesus being the promised king that the Israelites had been waiting for. It's also paralleling something that King David, one of Israel's best and most famous kings, actually did. See, there was a time when he rode in to the city of Jerusalem, often called the city of David, and he rode in as their king, but he rode on a donkey to indicate that he was coming in peace, not war. See, a horse is an animal bred for war at the time, but a donkey was just a beast of burden. Also, it's just kind of cool to point out, we don't see Jesus riding anywhere. Like, this is very significant. It's not his normal mode of transportation. Like, he's very intentionally paralleling what King David did, which was approaching the city as a king coming in peace. So with this in mind, right, the two disciples, they go and they do what Jesus said to do. So the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. And they brought the donkey and the colt to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd, because there's a big crowd of people coming in with Jesus, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These are likely palm trees and palm leaves, and this is the event that has maybe historically been celebrated as uh, Palm Sunday. Like they're taking branches and they're cutting them and they're throwing them in front of Jesus riding on the donkey. They're taking garments and they're laying them out. What they're doing is they're making a royal parade out of this. Like this is how you interacted with a king. They're treating him like a king. They're recognizing the symbolism and the intentionality here. He's coming as a king in peace, and they're worshiping him. They're treating him like a king, and they're making a royal parade out of this thing. And in the middle of it, we have Jesus. And the verse continues, and it says that Jesus is in the center of the procession, and all the people around him are shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. And so we see Jesus approaching Jerusalem, and people are thanking God for Jesus, and they're shouting, they're cheering him on. I just want to point something out. Jesus is riding a young donkey, a colt here, that's never been ridden in the middle of a shouting crowd. 
Do you know what untrained, unbroken donkeys normally do in the middle of a shouting crowd surrounded by yelling people? Not let you ride them, okay? So we have two options here. One, Jesus is a cowboy, which I like to think about, but no. Or two, Jesus is demonstrating just that he's king, that he's God, even in how he's approaching the city on a donkey that should not have let him ride it in the middle of a shouting, worshiping, parading crowd. A second thing to point out in the scene right here as we see Jesus surrounded by people worshiping him and declaring him and praising God is that these are not people from Jerusalem. These are people approaching the city. See, Jerusalem would get a lot bigger during Passover week. Uh, scholars would say between four and ten times its size. Uh, so for us Hoosiers here, just kind of think about South Bend and Mishawaka when Notre Dame plays a home game, right? So you've got a city and then it just explodes. And then afterwards there's a mess and it shrinks back down. Right, that's Jerusalem. It's a city that explodes during this time. And there's people coming from all over. And just based on where Jesus approaches the city, we think that it's most likely people coming from Galilee that are coming in. So these are foreigners coming into the city. Israelites, but you know, still not people that lived in Jerusalem. These are the outsiders, and they're coming in. And these are the people, not the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These are the people that are worshiping Jesus, and making a big deal out of who he is. They understand, at least partially, who Jesus is. But not everyone in Jerusalem agreed. Uh, the citizens of Jerusalem didn't even necessarily know who he was. Uh, we kind of continue the verse here. and says that the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus. Check. The prophet. Okay, I missed that one. The prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, some of the people, like they know he's the Messiah. So some people actually thought he was a prophet, right? They'd become more and more disappointed as the week went on. And the people who thought he was a king... If they thought he was coming in war, then they would also become more and more disappointed as the week goes on. But Jesus is really clear in how he approaches riding a donkey that he was a king coming in peace. It's clear, it's direct, and it's very intentional. See, a week before he would offer his life on the cross, Jesus offers himself as king. Now, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, it's a shift. See, he hadn't presented himself that way before. He'd always been the Messiah. He'd always been God. But he's been very, very clear that he's a king coming in peace. Some people thought he was a prophet. Some people thought he was a warrior. They wanted him to come in and overthrow the oppressive government. And he didn't do that. They didn't get the Messiah they expected. And it's, it's, it's kind of easy for me, thousands of years later, to be like, well, yeah, but what they got was so much better. But you know what? There have been times when Jesus doesn't do what I want him or expect him to do. And it's pretty hard for me to get over that in the moment, too. I mean, I have watched my personal friends die. I've watched marriages end. I've watched people experience pain that I explicitly asked God to spare them from. God doesn't always do what I want him to do. You can probably relate with that. Here's the deal. He's not a God that I or you can fully comprehend. His plans don't always make sense to us. And just over time, I've made peace with that. Because I don't want to worship a God that I am smarter than or bigger than. Like, yeah, there's times where I want him to do stuff that makes sense to me, but if I want to think about who I want to worship, no, I don't want to worship a God that I'm bigger than. I want to worship a God that's bigger than me. And you know what? If Jesus is a king, he's not always the king that I expect him to be. Maybe that's a good thing. So when I think about what I expect of kings, and... How many kings would step down from their throne, carry their own cross, and then die on it? Only one that I think of. 
He's a different kind of king. And he deserves to be treated differently. So how should we respond to him? I would say with worship. Well, what's worship? Uh, it's a churchy word. Worship is expressing our adoration of God. It's worship is expressing our adoration of God. And that's what I hope we can do. To know that if Jesus presented himself as the king of kings, that we would recognize him as our king, and we would respond and worship. That's our main idea for today. It's not catchy. It's not complicated. It's simple. Worship Jesus as king. Four words. We can do it. Worship Jesus as king. That's how we're invited to respond to him. Because of who he is and what he's done. And maybe you're new to faith or you're skeptical. You're saying, okay, you say because of who he is and what he's done, well, why do I care? What does that mean to me? Well, I mean, just to start with, Jesus is and was an incredible teacher that gives us a new way to approach life. And his teachings changed the world. He's more than that, but he is an incredible teacher. He's also a father. Uh, No matter how dysfunctional our families are here on earth or what our family of origin looked like, he invites us to become a part of his family. He's a provider. He provides, us, he provides for us better than we often know how to ask for. He's a savior. His sacrificial death on a cross makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And he's also God at the same time. And sometimes I don't fully understand how that works, but that's still a big deal. And with all of that, he's also a king. A good king. A perfect king. A holy king. A king with authority and power. And he should be treated that way. But we don't interact with a lot of kings. It's like, how are you supposed to treat a king? If I'm honest, I really don't care that much about earthly royalty. It, it means very little to me. And when I think about royalty, most of the time like, I think of the British royal family. And I haven't had to care about them since 1776. And so that just doesn't mean much to me. If they were here, like, I'd greet them. I would say hi. I would genuinely want to meet them. But... I don't think I would recognize them. Like, unless they had their guards with the red coats and the funny beaver hats, like, I wouldn't even know who they were. I certainly wouldn't worship them. But Jesus isn't just earthly royalty. No, no, like, he's the king. Not just a king, the king. Holy, perfect, without flaws. Someone who possesses power and authority. He's not like an elected official that we can change or remove every four years. Like, this is the all-powerful, rightful creator of the universe. His very nature demands respect. Can I give a little bit of perspective? Like when you're my size and you're walking down the street and you see like a jacked six foot eight dude, like his presence commands a certain level of respect from me just immediately. It's like that, but much bigger, right? The gap between me and a six foot eight giant of a man is nothing compared to the gap between us and God. Who he is demands respect. Attention, focus, obedience, and even our worship. He's a king. It's a big deal. He's not always the king we expect him to be, but you know what? Many Israelites felt the same way. He wasn't the prophet or the warrior they expected him to be. Some of them worshipped him anyway. Many of them rejected him. I wouldn't want us to reject Jesus just because he doesn't fit our image of what we think he should be. Right? He's the king, not us. So if he's the king, we're going to worship him, whether or not he fits into a little box that we create for him. So our idea is worship Jesus as king. Like, what does that mean? What are we going to do? Does this just mean singing? Or like, yeah, you know what? That's a part of it. But today I'm thinking about worship, especially because of the story, with kind of two thoughts especially. Praise 
and posture. So there's our first one. Worship Jesus as king through praise. Praise is expressing approval or admiration. And it can be something that's holy or it can be something that's just normal, right? Like, I had some amazing French toast on vacation a while ago. It was like giant, thick, fluffy French toast, like three stacked on top of each other, slathered in Nutella and strawberries. And it impacted me enough that I'm telling you about it right now, okay? That's good French toast. That is, on a very small scale, worthy of praise. Expressing approval or admiration. On a much bigger scale. It's how we think and speak of Jesus. Our view of who he is can lead us to verbally express our approval and our admiration of him. Now the crowd that's parading Jesus into Jerusalem, right? They're praising, they're singing, they're worshiping, they're using their words. They're making a big deal out of who Jesus is. They're shouting their gratitude to God. We do the same thing when we speak of Jesus, maybe when we write of him. And when we sing, yeah, that's one of the ways. Like the songs we sing are intentionally chosen to remind us of truths about God. to give us a chance to praise him for who he is. And all of that, especially the church singing part, that comes really naturally to some people, okay? Um, not me. Uh, not, not the singing part. Here's the deal. I'm just going to be very honest with you guys. I talked through all of this with Justin ahead of time. None of it's going to shock him. Um, none of it's going to shock you, actually. Um, I don't like singing around other people. Like, I genuinely dislike singing around other people. I'm not really good at it, and I'm very aware of that. Uh, there's this one time I was riding with my little brother Ross and my truck in Texas, and we're going around, and I'm like, I'm getting into the music, I, I'm jamming, and uh, he just goes, hey, who sings this song? And I told him, excited that he's like into it with me, he goes, yeah, you should let them sing it. Okay, mm. ouch. Mm. Not wrong, but still. So like, if I'm by myself, I enjoy singing. Like, if I am by myself in my house and I'm cooking, like, I'm going to blast some Chris Ledoux and Aaron Watson and if you don't know who they are, then congratulations, you're welcome, it's good country music. Um, but if I'm around other people, mm-mm. here, more than anywhere else, I would rather not sing. A couple of reasons. One, I'm working, like I work here, I get to, I love it, but I'm, I'm working. And two, like, I know you guys, friends, and like, I genuinely don't like to sing here more than anywhere else, most of the time. Just being honest. I don't always feel like expressing myself through song, especially before noon, um, especially during daylight savings. I don't always even want to listen to music. Here's the deal. All that's true. And it's not about me. Like, it's not. It's also not about you. If Jesus is king, it's not about what I want or what you want. It's about what the king wants. Praise is an opportunity for us to worship him, to acknowledge him, to respect him. We get to do that through worship, through song. Um, so we do it anyway. It doesn't come naturally to me. So if, if that's you, and you're kind of like a think first, feel second, maybe person, this is what I do, maybe it's helpful. Like before we worship through song, I'll pray. I'll ask God, say, God, would you help me to worship you right now? Would you help me to be grateful for you? Would you help me to sing you? Would you help me to enjoy it? I don't think it's wrong to ask God to help you enjoy something. Like, I ask him, like, God, would you help me enjoy you and enjoy worshiping you right now? Um, would you help me to love you more? And sometimes, like, I become overwhelmed by gratitude and joy, and it's an amazing experience. And sometimes, I'll sing. I might raise my hands 
but I'm doing it out of discipline and I feel very little. It's not, if, if you feel something great, that's awesome. Some people feel something incredible every time. Good for you. I, I'm jealous, but I don't, and that's okay. Sometimes we can, can do something, we can do something from conviction that we don't do from passion. Like we can love and worship God out of discipline, even if we don't feel it in the moment. So if you love worship through song and you just get excited, awesome. And if you don't, okay, I'm with you. But worshiping Jesus isn't just about doing what we feel good. Doing, that's not even a sentence. Doing what feels good or what makes us happy. It's often about doing what's right and it's praising him as our king. It's something we can do even if we don't sound good, right? There's a lot of ways to worship. Praying, serving, giving, learning, going, studying. There's, there's so many ways. Singing is one of them. Okay? It's just one of them. And there's Bible verses that talk about making a joyful noise. Not necessarily a skilled one, not just crushing a solo, but making a joyful noise out of love for God. And we're invited to do that. And God cares more about where our hearts are when we praise him than how technically skilled we are. One of the ways that we worship Jesus as king is through our praise. But another one that we see in this story is to worship him as king through our posture. Posture. All right, that's a fancy word. It also starts with a P. Since I'm a pastor, I wanted to pick praise and posture as our points so that I could practice making words parallel each other as long as it's practical to do so. And because our posture is important. Now, my dad's a chiropractor, which means I know what good posture is. And I know that a lot of you don't have it, okay? But to make things even, I don't either. I'm going to show you, okay? This is how I normally stand. If you're noticing, you might see that my head is a little bit farther forward than the rest of my body. It's been described as a turtle before. <laughs> turtle. Turtle. You will never unsee that. You're welcome. I will walk your dreams as the turtle man. Turtle. And you can fix your posture. All right? I'm going to show you that too. If you want to ever fix it, take it. Pull your hair up. Straight up. Boom. Now you can look down on everybody and judge them for their bad posture. Our posture is important because it affects so many aspects of our health. Physically, this is true. Spiritually, this is true as well. Our spiritual posture matters. How we view God, how we approach him, that's significant as well. Our posture before God isn't about how we hold our spine or our neck. Our posture before God is how we hold our hearts and our spirits before him. God wants us, and I want us, to approach God with humility, recognizing that we are approaching a king. Yes, a loving God, but still a king, worthy of our attention and obedience and respect. The people that are worshiping and they're, they're parading Jesus into the city, they're also worshiping not just with their praise, but with their posture. We see, them, we see them take their garments and lay them out in front of him, and cutting branches off the trees, became known as Palm Sunday, cutting branches off the trees and throwing them down in front of him. Like with their bodies, they are worshiping him. And with our posture, we can worship God as well. When we allow our bodies to physically mirror our hearts, we are worshiping. It's not about thinking poorly of yourself to approach God with humility, but it's about thinking about and understanding the gap between us and God. We're here, all right? If you struggle with self-esteem, I am not trying to kick you while you're down. I'm not saying we're down here. I'm saying we're here, okay? But there's still a giant gap between us and God. He's the king. Jesus is king. Now, that king loves you chose you, wants you, all of those things. I want you to think poorly of yourself 
but I do want us to recognize the giant gap between us and the king that's worthy of our worship. When we approach Jesus as king, we want to do so with a posture of humility. And when we worship, whether that's through song or prayer or something else, we can use our bodies, our posture, to mirror our hearts before God. If you're you're new or you're kind of new to this and you think it's weird, I'm about to explain something really Christian and make it make sense, I hope. Uh, You might see people raise their hands when they worship. They don't have like little lighters in them. Like, no, they're just raising their hands, right? That's a way to worship. It's saying, like, God, I want you. It's, It's reaching for God. It's acknowledging him as God. It can mean a lot of things to different people, but it's a way to use our posture to worship. You might see people kind of put their hands out in front of them, maybe when they're praying or if someone's singing. It's like, God, like, I want to receive who you are, or I want to be open-handed with something. It's a way for our posture to reflect our heart before God. You could kneel or bow. Um, we ask people to bow their heads, and part of that's practical, just so people are a little bit more comfortable, but part of it's also as a way to worship. Like, you would bow before a king. It's a way to show deference and honor, right? Our physical bodies can mirror our hearts in an act of worship. That's what I want us to do today, is to worship Jesus as king with our praise and with our posture. So in just a minute, we're going to do that. I want to give a couple instructions before we do. So here's what's going to happen. In a minute, I'm going to pray. It's going to be a longer prayer than normal. Uh, and at the end of it, I want to read some verses from the Bible describing Jesus as king. And I want us to kind of focus and think about those. And after that, we're going to sing. And I want to invite us to worship, as, worship Jesus as king through our praise and through our posture. So when we pray, I'm, just, I'm personally asking, would everyone here bow your head? And it's not so you're not looking around. It's not so you're not distracted. I'm asking you to do it as a way to worship Jesus and saying, hey, you know what? I'll bow before you. Okay. And if you're comfortable with it, then go one step further. Maybe that means putting your hands out. Maybe that means kneeling. Maybe that's putting your hand up. Okay. Don't know. Don't care. It's between you and God. But I would challenge you to use your body in some way that you are comfortable with to worship Jesus as king. And then... I'm going to read a final verse, and the last word in that verse is amen. I'm going to scooch off the stage. I'm going to go down there, and I would ask that we all praise Jesus as king with our voices when we sing. Raise your voices. Raise your hands. I don't care if it sounds good or not. You're not going to hear me. I'm not going to hear you. That's not the point. But would you praise Jesus as king as we sing together? He's worthy of every bit of worship we can give. So with that in mind, I'd like to pray for us. Would you bow your heads with us? King Jesus, we worship you. We want to adore you. We want to acknowledge that you are God. Some of us, you're our Savior. You're our King. You are holy and we are not. We are grateful for you and we love you. Would you help us to love you more? We want to slow down right now and just take a minute and say that you're good. Whether our week has been good or our year has been good, you're good because you're God. You're amazing. You created the whole world, and you care so much about every single person in the room and online individually that you know how many hairs are on our head. You know all of our hopes and all of our dreams. You know the best things we've done, and you know the worst things we've done, and you still love us. We are grateful. You loved us so much that even as the rightful king of the universe, you stepped down from your throne, and you hung on a cross so that we could have a relationship with you. And you know what? I'm so grateful for that relationship. But in the middle of it, sometimes I forget that you're a king. I think a lot of us do. Because you love us and you invite us to have this personal relationship with you. And we're so grateful for that. We get to look at you as a father. And you are still our king. 
So we want to praise you as king with some of the words you inspired, starting in 1 Timothy. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. You, King Jesus, you are the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. You alone are God. And we respect you as someone who has been given the right to rule. Like you said in Daniel, Jesus, you have been given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so the people of every race and nation and language would obey you. Your rule is eternal. It will never end. Your kingdom will never be destroyed. And right now we're worshiping you as our eternal king. We are grateful that you loved us enough to die to save us from our sins. We want to describe you the way that you're described in Revelation as the king that rose from the dead and invited us to become priests. Jesus, you invited us to become worshipers of you and God the Father both. You are the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. You have made us a kingdom of priests for God your Father. All glory and power to you forever and ever. Amen.